and being here and for listening to, to God's Word these past couple of, of weeks as we've been looking at Titus. But this is our third series, a third meeting in our series in, in Titus entitled Entrusted. And in the first study, you may remember if you were here, that we looked at the fact that the Apostle Paul knew exactly who he was for over 30 years. He had been a slave of God. He had been a servant of God. And we, we, we emphasized that in our first study to think of the fact that once we, in the past, we were, we were slaves to sin. And uh, when we became Christians, we became slaves of another, slaves of Jesus Christ. And we thought about that in our first study. And then Paul knew where he came from, for he was an apostle, which simply meant sent, sent by Jesus himself. And he also knew why he was here, because in the beginning of the letter, he talks about for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And finally, he knew where he was going. He had the hope of eternal life, which is there in the beginning of the letter as well, which was promised before the beginning of time. And then last week, we looked at the challenge Paul gave. The challenge Paul gave to be a Christian and not a Cretan, or rather to be a Christian Cretan. And Paul gave a list of positive characteristics or character traits and painted for us the picture of what it is like to be a Christian. And I underlined the fact that even though it is mentioned that these character traits are mentioned concerning elders here in this passage of Scripture, what Paul is describing is a Christian a Christian. All Christians should be or should live this way. And it was, in fact, in order, the reason that the letter was written was in order that uh, he might put into order that which was left unfinished by, by the apostle to appoint leaders in every town who would model this Christian life and who would also, and more, most importantly, encourage the believers in their faith and stand up against those who oppose true teaching. So if you missed the last two, there you've got it in a few, few words of what we've looked at in the past two weeks. Now, as we move into chapter two, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to it. It may come up on the screen, I'm not sure. But um, as we move into chapter two, Paul, as it pains to show these Cretans, and in turn us, the link that there is between our statement of faith and the state of our life. Our statement of faith and state of our life. In other words, our accepted teaching and what we believe and our accepted lifestyle ought to match, ought to go hand in hand. Have you ever noticed in people's lives what they truly believe about affects how they live? The, the student, I don't know, for example, I have my family here today, so they'll be able to tell you what I'm, I'm really like. It's always dangerous bringing your, fam your family. But the student, say, for example, who may be, I don't know, um, studying Nat Fives this year, um, ought to be studying now, is that, is that right, Chris, for, 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 for later on this year. What we are 
hopefully going to do or be or want to be affects how we live today. Or the person who believes that life is all about holidays and time off, and they are counting down the days until their next holiday. Or the person who believes it's all, that life is all about their house, or all about their family, or all about their hobby, or all about their team. or the, Their life is filled with effort in order to spend time in these particular activities. And we as Christians, what we believe should affect how we live, and how we live shows what we believe. So we're going to look at that in Titus chapter, chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses one to 15 under, under this title, Entrusting and Believing Means or Is Behaving. So let's read Titus chapter 2. This is the Word of God. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous, slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority and do not let anyone despise you. Just another brief prayer, shall we? Father, we ask that as we have read these words that the truth of them might burn deep within our hearts and our minds so that we might live lives that honor you and glorify you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've read through Paul's letter, you might have spotted the difference from Paul's usual way of teaching and writing as he comes to Titus. Normally, Paul underlines for us, normally what he does is he underlines God's truth, uh, doctrinal truth and clear teaching about who God is and the characteristics of, of God or who Jesus is or what Christ has done and so on. And then based on that truth, he tells them, here is how you live. 
For example, in the first of Paul's letters in the Bible to the people of Rome, Paul writes 11 chapters, and then the hinge of the letter, uh, as it swings from mainly doctrinal truth to mainly practical truth, the hinge of the letter is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 in, in, in Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is the hinge of the letter. As Paul mainly turns from teaching about God and teaching about what we are and because of our sin, and God's righteousness that's been revealed, and also His work of Holy, the Holy Spirit in their life, he che- and then His sovereignty in chapters 9, 10, and 11, He turns in chapter 12 and says, this is how you should live. You see, our belief means, or rather should affect how we behave. What we believe about the current issues that our world faces will determine how we live. So we will stick with Paul's way of doing it here in this, in this passage of Scripture because it's, it's, it's a, a, wee bit, a wee bit different from, from his other letters for he picks up on six groups of people here in verses 1 to 10 and then he gives the reason why they should behave in verses 11 and 14. So it seems to be around the other way here by telling them what they believe concerning Jesus at the end and finishes the chapter with a, a final encouragement. So we'll, we'll follow Paul's way through, or rather follow the Spirit of God's way, inspiring, inspiring Paul to write in such a way. So let's look at how these groups should behave. Verse 2, it says the older men. In verse 3, it talks about older women. Note it doesn't say old men and old women. It says older. I'm older than I, than I was <laughs> um, when I first got saved some 30 years ago. It's incredible. I must have been saved as a, a toddler. Um, but older men, older women, younger women, again in verse 4, young men, verse 6, and then he addresses Titus in verses 7 and 8, and slaves in verse 9. Godliness, you see, is the aim of Paul's teaching here, and indeed his writing to Timothy. Peter Lewis, um, who's written a, a few commentaries, and I had the privilege of, uh, of meeting him when I was speaking up in the north of, of Scotland. He's from Nottingham, but he was up at a conference uh, in the north of Scotland, said this in one of his books, and, and I really love it. Godliness is a community project. Sanctification is social. We can't be wholly alone. Think that one through. God has brought together a group of His people called a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. We weren't made to be on our own. God is calling out His people. That's the idea behind church. God is calling out His people to be a people, to be the body of Christ for His honor and His glory. And the challenge for us is that that when we realize that we have each the potential to be one or ones that bring unholiness into the body of Christ. You see, people in the church are affected by how I live. 
That is, the older people among us are teaching by their lifestyle and behavior those who are younger. And so the older men, verse 2, have to be temperate. You see that in the passage? Which means moderate. Young men tend to be more extreme, if I remember back that far. But as they grow, they should be more moderate. Instead of the lazy, greedy cretins described in chapter 1. Do you remember how they were described in chapter 1? They are to be sensible, these older, older men, sensible and balanced. They are also to be worthy of respect. When I was growing up, most people over the age of 25 or 30, I would call them Mr. or Mrs. Um, now that I'm just slightly over 25. Um, uh, when someone calls me Mr. Blair, I'm looking for my dad. I remember an old couple two doors down the road from, from me, Mr. and Mrs. Keery, and they were really quite, quite older people at the time, and I don't, even, I don't even know to this day their first names. And I knew them as Mr. and Mrs. Keery, and I lived beside them for, for about well, 15, 20 years before they passed away, and I saw him most days of my life, and I remember him because every time that he would meet me, he would grab my cheek, even when I was 16, and I used to hate it. But the respect that I had for this man, just because of his age and the fact that he was quite a, a, a gentle fellow, apart from the fact when he physically abused me, um, uh, I, I, was, I was reminded him of him just not that long ago. If you know Motherwell, there's the Duchess Park in, in Motherwell, and it, it celebrated a, a wee while back uh, an anniversary, and he for many years uh, was responsible for the wee putting green that was there during his retirement. And every time I walk past that, I think of him. Uh, uh, the respect that I had for him. Now, Paul is not assuming that because we are old, that you are ultimately worthy of respect in the sense of godly Christian respect. The characters of old men or older men need to be honorable and dignified. I can remember as a young Christian, when I became a Christian in Roman Road, Gospel Hall in Motherwell, uh, and I was helping this older man paint his fence, and, he, uh, and he, was, he was painting the fence with me, and I was painting the other side, and he said to me, um, whatever you do, please don't stand in the flowers, and my neighbor's flowers, because they're prized flowers, and what does Gary do at the age of 18? He stands all over the, the flowers, and, 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 and he lost a bit of his, his temper. He said, oh no, he said, I told you not to stand, and then right away he apologized. He said, I'm sorry I lost my my patience with you, my temper with you. I respected that man greatly. He prayed at our wedding. He's now with the Lord. One day we'll, we'll see him. Paul is not assuming just because you're old that you're ultimately worthy of respect in the sense of godly Christian respect. We need to be live lives which honor the Lord and bring dignity to the Lord's people. We are to be self-controlled. The older men are to be self-controlled. Again, thinking to the excesses of those Cretans, they are not to give in to natural desires. These Cretans did. 
And they have to be different. They have to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. You see, age itself is no, no guarantee of wise and godly living, is it? We haven't arrived because we're old or older. We need to remind ourselves that wise and godly living is to be taught by all and to all. So that's the older men. The, the, the older women, verse 3. Now, let me just put a disclaimer in here. I've never tried to guess a woman's age. Well, I did once, and I got away with it just. I've found that life is far more safer if you, if, if you don't. But let me just say, forget the old woman part and read what it says, older. That is, if you're old enough to influence younger women or younger people. Older women are to be reverent in the way they live, not slanderous. Incidentally, slander is the devil's work. It is he who slanders the saints, who brings false accusation to the saints, and we're not to be part of his work. Not addicted to wine. Don't let it take you prisoner, as it does have an addictive quality to it. I lived in a, 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 in a culture in, in France for 10 years where wine was very much part of, of social occasions and so on. But what it is saying here is don't be addicted to it. Don't, don't, don't let it take you prisoner. But to teach what is good. This is the idea of by your life teaching what is good. Remember, life and doctrine go hand in hand. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life and your doctrine very closely. But to teach what is good by how we live. What you believe, you live. And what you live is what you believe. And these older women are to teach the younger women. Do you notice the subtle yet wise difference between what Titus as a fairly young man has to teach and what Paul urges others to teach. Titus has to teach the older men, the old men, the older men, the young men himself and slaves, yet he has to delegate the teaching of younger women to the older women. For me, that is just common sense. A younger man with young women put, puts temptation in, his, in their way. Many a church leader has fallen in this area. And we are not immune to it. And we have to be careful when we're teaching in the church and teaching in youth groups and so on. Be very, very careful. Be wise. You, we, we have to be wise in the way that we work with, with people of the, the, the opposite sex. And that goes both ways. And that is part of holy living. And none of us are immune to falling and failing in this area. Flee from it. Don't put yourself in this position. Now, I don't believe that what I've just said is taught directly from this passage. However, I believe it is strongly inferred here. Never put yourself in the position of temptation if you are ministering and pastoring someone of the opposite sex. Make sure there are others around and there is a level of accountability. And as we move to these younger women, they are to be taught by the older women, by the older women, lifestyle and way of loving their husbands and loving their families. And I would add here, loving the church. 
because we have it in, in other passages of Scripture, the way that we relate to one another. They show how to live the Christian life. Now, can I just see here that the idea of being busy at home carries it with it. The idea, I think, Phillips has in his translation of home lovers in as much as the home husband, children, and loving environment is not neglected. It's not saying that we can't do other things, but we've not to neglect it. I don't believe that is teaching we must be housewives. Of course not but rather don't neglect a home. Love it. The young men, verse 6, are to be self-controlled. Young, young men have a tendency to live life to the extreme, to the limit. Uh, when I was young, pre, pre-30, I had a dis- disastrous knee injury that ruined any hope that I had of being a professional footballer. I think I was probably, there was other things that ruled me out from being a professional footballer as well. Skill would have been one. Um, but at the age of 30, I had quite a disastrous knee operation. In fact, 18 years later, I've now been referred and I've to get a camera put in, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I pay, played quite a bit of football, the town next, next to us where we, we lived in Albania. And there were about 25 guys or so, age range between 15 and 40, who trained on a Monday evening. And I trained with them. And in this little town, there was a major crossroads. Major crossroads, small kind of village type. It was a town, but it was village-like. And there was this, this crossroads here. And during the day, it had quite a lot of heavy traffic in it. And these young guys who were coming to play football would come in their mopeds. And the law stated that you needed to wear a helmet or you needed to have a helmet with you when you drove a moped. Not wear it, have it. And so they would have it round their elbow. They would have it tied to their belt at the back. Some would have it just sitting in the top of their head, you know, like looking like an alien at the back, you know, with a big um, thing at the back. But what they loved to do in the way to the football on a Monday night was they would come to this crossroads where they had to give way. And the thrill of not giving way was ever present in these young guys. And in the space of four, I think it was four years, three, possibly four years, three guys were killed at that crossroad. Three guys. The thrill of going through this crossroad. Young men are to be self-controlled. Why? Because we have a tendency not to be. Sadly, to my knowledge, even after these funerals, it didn't stop the other guys from, from doing the exact same thing. You see, being self-controlled when you're young demands effort. And, but more than that, it is motivated by what you believe life is all about. And so we have looked at older men, women, younger men, and women, and there are two groups left. Well, the first is an individual, and it's Titus himself. Do you see that? Just like the older women have to be examples to the younger, Titus has to be an example for the younger men. And everything set them an example by doing what is good, by your integrity, by your seriousness and your soundness of speech. Now, this is, this is important. Holiness and holy living, remember the quote that I gave you, Peter Lewis, is a, is a community project. Remember this, what I, what I said, it's community. The letters were written to communities of Christians. 
God has made us into social beings, and therefore sanctification, holy living, happens in a community. And what is at stake in a church when members are living in blatant sin is that it affects the church or can affect the church as a whole. Now, be careful what I'm, I'm saying. The church is not, a, a, is not full of perfect people. We are all sinners saved by grace. We all fall into, into sin. We all need daily repentance of our sin. We all need to keep short accounts with God as we confess our sin. That is not what this, this is teaching. It's not teaching perfect living here, but rather this idea of, of, of allowing unholiness to invade our lives. We need to be people who keep short accounts with God. You see, that is why we can't live with the idea of you in your small corner and I in mine. That kind of mentality, because holy living is church holy living. The church is community. That's why some churches have called themselves community church, or fellowship, or whatever, or even simply church, because we are called together to serve Christ, and we are called together to encourage one another to live Christian lives, a community of God's people who are living examples for one another of holy living. Think about your own Christian life, of how you've grown in your Christian life, either through reading the Word of God, but also through chatting with people over a cup of tea or whatever, and, and you've maybe shared something about your, your life and a difficulty that you have in your life, and someone comes alongside you and says, here's how the Lord helped me in this. That's what church is about, isn't it? It's like sharing with one another. And the last group here are the slaves, or let's call it the employees. Some people still think they're slaves to their companies or to their schools or whatever. But they're the employees. They are to be subject to their masters, to their employers. And we as Christians have to honor, honor them, not speak back, please them, and not steal from them if we're employees. Now, Paul explains to Titus through this chapter the goal of all this is the honor of God and also evangelism and reaching out to others. Do you see it? Verses 5, verse 8, and verse 10. Verse 5, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Here is why you have to live this way, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. We are evangelistic in the way that we live our lives. The greatest form of evangelism, I have come to to, to believe this with all, all, all my heart is the way in which we live out our lives and share the gospel. Yes, we must share it with words. The gospel came to those at Thessalonica with words. We mustn't forget that. With power, with deep conviction, and the Holy Spirit, we need to share with words, whether it's preaching or whether it's just simply sharing over a, a breakfast table or a, a lunch table or whatever. But it is our lives. It's how we live. It's when we go to, 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 to work tomorrow. 
It's when we, we, we go to work and people wonder how on earth it is that you never, you never cheat or you, you, don't, you don't want to cheat or, or you don't want to lie or, or, and you don't lie. It, it, it's that that speaks volumes to people. I don't know how many conversations I've had at the school gates with the, with the children, with parents of the children, and we tell them why we do certain things or we tell them we're doing certain things with the children and say, why on earth do you do that? Why on earth do you send them to a Scripture Union voice camp? Well, let me tell you why I send them to a Scripture Union voice camp, which is just down the road in Gowan Bank. I send them to it because they are learning songs about God and the truth about God. What do you want to teach them about God? They're asking you questions constantly. I remember when I, I worked in, in, in France, I, I, I was teaching English in a, in a social center in France. Um, great to hear French people speaking English with a, a Lanarkshire accent. Um, these kids running about pronouncing the, the colors brown and girl, saying words like girl and brown. and Fantastic to hear, to hear French people speaking English the way it should be. Uh, spoken. And I remember being in this, this social centre, and after, after a little while, the, the, the director of the social centre, this lady came to me, uh, and she said, um, Gary, I have to speak to you. I want to take you into the office and speak to you. She said, you cannot, you cannot tell people, you cannot preach during your, your English classes. She said, I don't. Uh, I, I used Cambridge or Oxford books and, and so on. I, I don't. She said, yeah, it was just one association has complained that there is a Christian teaching English in the social center. And uh, she said, I'm just making you aware that you can't proselytize, you can't tell um, or preach. And I said, can, can I ask you a question? She said, yes. Yeah. If someone asks me what I am and what I do, can, can I share it with them? She said, well, of course, if someone asks you a question, you can share it. Of course, you're not asking you to lie about your life. And I said, that, that's interesting. I said, because every third class, my class asks me, the, the third class of every first session that I have, they ask me what I do for a living. And I explained to them that I'm a, I, I explained that I was a pastor because explaining that you were a missionary in France, people wouldn't understand that. Because in the English class, it says, ask your teacher what he does. And I say, I'm a pastor. And they said, Pastor, what, do you believe the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Yes, I do. What do you believe about the Bible? And I said, well, what about Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I explained to them. And I said this to the, the, the director of the social center. She said, there are two things that you're not allowed to speak in the social center. It's about religion and about politics. And in fact, when I was in France, you know my name, Blair. Tony Blair was the prime minister, so it gave opportunity to speak about politics constantly with people. And she said, after about 10 minutes, she asked me the question. I was in her, her office, I think, about well over an hour. After about 10 minutes, she asked me, well, what is it you believe anyway? I said, are you asking me the question? <laughs> she said, yeah. And I shared with her the gospel. And she asked, constantly asked questions. You see, it's interesting that Peter and Paul write about similar, in a similar vein so that you will know how to give an answer. Why? Because of your holy living. Because of your living. 
the way that you bring up your children, the way that you react to others in church, the way that you react to people in the community that really the vast majority of people don't want to spend any time with. People will ask the question. They might ask others first about you, but they will ask the question. And here we have it so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. There's a little poem, and I can't remember who the, um, the author is, but you can check it online. And it goes like this. I won't go through it all because there's umpteen verses of it, but you may be the only Bible some people read. If you were the only Bible your neighbor ever read, could they find their way to heaven by what you did or said? If you were the only Bible your family ever saw, could they repeat a Bible verse or just some angry word? If you were the only Bible that your children were to read, would they grow up to follow Christ as you planted the seed? If you were the only Bible that the hurting heard you share, would they know that you were genuine and that you truly care? If you were the only Bible the world should ever see, would they know that you were once a sinner, but now Christ has set you free? If you wish to be the Bible that you hope to share, you must spend time reading God's Word and bathing it in prayer. Your neighbors, your family should know that you, who you are by the way you live. They should also see by what you, how you live what you believe. For here in verses 11 to 14 is our ultimate reason for our behavior. For it surrounds what we believe concerning sound doctrine. The gospel, it surrounds the person of Jesus and his two appearings. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's his first appearing. Second appearing is in verse 13. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is to do with our believing in grace and glory. This teaches us how to behave. For if we truly believe that Jesus came into this world and gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us and to make us holy, and if we truly believe that he's coming back again in glory, then surely as we live in the time in between these two appearings, which we believe with all our heart, then surely that motivates our current behavior. For the grace of God in Christ Jesus' coming teaches, to say, teaches us to say no to worldly passions and ungodliness and to, present, and to present ourselves, but to presently live today in holiness, displaying God, godliness in our lives. When we realize that He came to ransom us, to redeem us, then surely it will affect how I live today. And not only that, the fact that Jesus is coming in glory and power and, and one day soon, then surely that is motivation to be living in a way that honors him as we await his second coming. And the Bible gives us a good test as to whether we are truly anticipating and waiting for, for Christ to come. And it comes from the pen of the Apostle John, the letter that we looked at last 
year when I was with you, and he writes in chapter 3 of his letter, Dear friends, now that we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known to us, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he may take, might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sin, sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The motive for us being godly is Jesus. So believing means behaving. Behaving, being godly, shows that we believe in Jesus' two appearings, his coming in grace and his soon appearing in glory. And Paul says to Titus, these are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke, admonish, that means with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you in it. Next week, when I'm finished, Normally, I get an amen for that. I'm finished. <laughs> Next week, we, we shall look at our last study, which is closely linked to this. And if you want to lead, uh, read on, rather, uh, in chapter 3, you can by way of, uh, of preparation. And we're looking at a new kind of living, a new kind of lifestyle. Perhaps you might want to read ahead to capture the final installment of this, this intriguing letter. Do not forget as I close that this is the second last letter that we have of the Apostle Paul. This is his heart. This is what he wants to leave with the leaders that he has been training up. This is what he wants as his legacy, as his last will and testament, if you like. That's normally 2 Timothy. But Titus is along with it, and so is 1 Timothy. This is what he wants to leave. And this is what God, by His Spirit, wants us as believers to accept as truth as we read it concerning what we believe and how we behave. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank You for Your patience and grace and mercy towards us even as your children. Thank you, Father, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We praise you for that. We thank you that as far as east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. We thank you that your patience and your long-suffering and your grace are new every day. Your faithfulness towards your people is renewed day by day by day. And Father, I thank you for that. And I ask, Lord, that as we have looked at this chapter 2 of Titus and some challenging points for our lives, we pray, Father, that we would respond to it, respond to your word in, in truth and in worship and in thanksgiving for the life to which you've called us. Father, thank you for your, your goodness. And we take time to pray, Father, for one another and especially for this, uh, these funeral arrangements tomorrow. 
and I lovingly commend those who will take part tomorrow. I pray that you would heal the brokenhearted, that you would minister to hearts that as yet do not know you. And Father, that your name would be honored and glorified even at such a sad occasion. Father, we thank you that our hope goes beyond the grave. And we thank you, Father, that we await a Savior from heaven. Help us to live, Father, in the light of the comings of Jesus Christ, his first appearing and his soon second appearing. In Jesus' name, amen.